2: Hey, we're back again. Roddy Mysterioso is back uh, with a promised guest. Let me uh, fade this out. I'm going to try something new with the phone here and see if I can mic the phone. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, plug the phone in and um, still talk. Because I did this in a car the other day. It's like, oh, wait, I can do this on the show. It's just a sec. Let me see if this works.
3: (laughs) Hey, I can hear you, Greg.
2: Okay, I just have to turn the the, uh, volume up on my uh, phone. How's that?
3: Sounds good. I, okay. I, I hear
2: you good. Okay, good. Wow, it's working. Ta-da. Amazing. As promised today Brent Rains is our guest. I um I don't I do not do normal in, introductions and I couldn't find an introduction for you except I found the one on the coast to coast site. Should I read that one? <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, it's it's a few years old but it's probably still applicable. <laughs> yeah,
2: well, you you stop me in the middle and yell wrong when when you hear something that's not right. <laughs> This is straight off the coast-to-coast Coast site, and since this is a nonprofit show, I can use it um, uh, under Creative Commons, right? Yeah, of course. Brent Raines has been investigating and, and researching UFOs since 1967. He's the author of Visitors from Hidden Realms and the editor of Alternate Perceptions magazine, which is where I'd first heard of him. Uh, Brent has traveled extensively across the U.S. and into Canada, interviewing numerous, numerous witnesses and researchers. He's taken a comprehensive global and historical perspective on the ufological landscape. He's also participated in Native American rituals and ceremonies, gaining valuable insights and information from his interactions with these wisdom keepers. He's able to make revealing comparisons between the interrelated experiences and disciplines of parapsychology, shamanism, Jungian archetypes, and ufology. Did you write that or did somebody at the show write that for you?
3: Um, I put it together. <laughs> yeah, because you
2: because if anybody knows about being on um, uh, coast to coast, basically what they do is say write an intro and write all the questions. <laughs> um, I don't know if they do that with everybody, but
3: well, they deviated. They deviated a lot from the questions, but they used my intro.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I I got lucky to be on with Art Bell, and he read the intro I wrote verbatim. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. I thought he'd kind of, you know, jump off script a little bit, but no, he went straight through it. And then he, um, we went into the show. Anyway, uh, I first heard about um, uh, Brent Rains through uh, the Alternate Perceptions magazine, which is still published. When did you start publishing that? Like in the early '90s or something? I think.
3: Well, actually, we started in in 1985, and uh, at that time, it was just like a four page newsletter.
2: Oh wow, that long ago! So it was like it predates the Zine Revolution, so called.
3: Yeah, it goes back a ways. It was uh, Dr. Greg Will and I actually got on board together uh, about '93 and right. began to put together. Uh, he'd had some experience in publishing, and he uh, gave it more of a professional journal type look. And um, for a while, we were a print publication, and uh, about 2001. Uh, we saw the writing on the wall and decided uh, we would uh, probably do best going going online with the magazine.
2: Well, I think you saw it earlier than a lot of people. I mean, that's uh, mo- I think almost everything's online now, at least uh, in any kind of zine because it, print is just it's just such a pain in the butt.
3: So. Right. I mean, it, it you know it uh, it dried up. I mean, we we started out pretty good and we had. Uh, you know, people who are distributing the magazine to different stores, but uh, it—you um, know—the sales were going down. So many people can get on the internet now and and get this information for free, and you know, it—it's uh, <laughs> kind of hard to sell something when the other you know people don't want to to buy it. So
2: right, right, yeah, and then then there was a—I don't know if you ever had a. Uh I can't remember even if you had ads in the magazine, but I would get them up to the point in my zine when it would p- help pay for itself. And as soon as I broke even, I stopped calling people about ads. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, we uh, we used to, uh, you know, like put bulletins in for people for free. We didn't never really did go to advertising and uh, did book reviews.
2: Right. Well, it, it, when you first started out, I mean, wh- why did you start the magazine? Just as a kind of a clearinghouse of info or for your own reason, you know, for your own information or what? All those things?
3: Uh, yeah, um, it was uh, it was called Parayufology Forum in the beginning. It explored, you know, the UFO contact phenomenon, the paranormal elements. And, and uh, you know, I had that was about the same year that I met Dr. Greg Little, uh, Memphis, uh Tennessee uh psychologist, writer, author of uh, a number of books exploring uh the UFO paranormal theme as well and and so we uh he he made some early contributions on uh, different things like exploring uh the possible role of endorphins uh with altered states and uh you know visionary uh paranormal elements abduction type memories and so we uh we worked together for you know, from 85 to 93, at which point uh, Greg thought that, you know, approached me. One day as we were looking at Indian Mounds down in Mississippi, how about, uh, you know, we uh, edit this magazine together, you know, because I was having some, actually some troubles, you know, uh, keeping it together, and I was even thinking about just shutting it down. So uh, glad I didn't, glad we kept, you know, he he made that uh, suggestion and we, we worked together on it and um, I'm pretty proud of what we're accomplishing now and, and, uh, what we, you know, what we put out.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm glad it's still around because it's still, I think it's still basically has the same outlook that it did. It just comes from the, uh, um, the school of, you know, mixing ufology with some other disciplines and other, uh, phenomena, I guess, and seeing what's, what the connections are. Cause there's a lot of them. And, uh, when I first saw Alternate Perceptions, I realized that you guys were, and, and read uh, People of the Web, and what was the other Greg Little book? I'm sorry.
3: Uh, Grand Illusions. Grand and, Illusions, uh, that's right. And his first one, back around 83 or 84, was The Octite Experience.
2: Right, yeah, that's one I was n- I've was. never been able to get a hold of, that book. It's probably a lot easier now uh, than when I first heard of it, when there was no internet to look for it. <laughs> so. Right.
3: Uh, I'm not sure. There may be a PDF on
2: that somewhere. Yeah, I, I'm sure. I'm sure somebody's got it. I actually found a copy of uh, I lost, or somebody stole, or I don't know what happened to my copy of. Um, uh, now I can't remember the name of the book. Uh, uh, Jim Brandon's book.
3: Oh. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that goes way back, though uh, <laughs> not uh, i couldn 't tell you off yeah, i't right re- yeah. talking yeah, d- about
2: yeah weird america rebirth of pan yeah. that 's it yeah i 've recently found another copy of that. I had to buy it from Germany. so <laughs> that 's how hard that book is <laughs> to find i 'm sure uh, archetype experience is even more going to be even more difficult, but I want to find it i mean it 's uh, there 's things in there that people are still ignoring in in, in mainstream ufology, I guess. Um, I guess what that's what makes the ufology mainstream. What What is going on with ufology now? People ask me, I say, I don't know, nothing's going on. Um, people are just fighting, and the loudest people seem to be the people that aren't doing anything important. W- well, that's the way it is in any discipline.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, I guess you just have to kind of find your ground where, you know, uh, do your thing, and uh, the heck was, you know, all the... You know, it's kind of like being... I would just commenting someone today that it's kind of kind of like you know doing this research that we do um when we have to look at all these other elements that may be part of it you know just to look at them uh kind of threaten some people's belief systems and uh uh you sometimes feel like a politician you know like uh you've got to work with other people there's not a real big audience out there (laughs) and uh because you want to maintain some readership but uh Uh, Some people are so threatened by, uh, if you say the wrong thing, that they're going to just go berserk on you sometimes.
2: Yeah, well, they do. I mean, I I don't know how many letters and emails you've gotten that are composed of probably 90% capitalized letters. But
3: But there's, um, you know, I I guess most people don't feel too threatened by us. We don't really get... uh, any real uh, bad, bad, much, much that's bad. I recently got one from someone who uh, uh, just became an unsubscriber because they didn't like uh, something we posted uh, regarding Native American burial sites. But uh, anyway, huh. um, we do just keep plugging away with trying to look at all of the different we feel are interrelated elements i know that other people don't agree and we we try to present an overview of you know something with uh... you know cryptozoology or uh... something to deal with the paranormal haunted house investigations ghost hunting, uh... uh and you know interview with people from different backgrounds so we don't just stick with trying to shove this down anybody's throat you know i I, I do a lot of kind of editorial rising in, in my column, reality checking, where I explore a lot of the UFO, paranormal things that I I see. But you know, um, anyone wants to get into the other areas, uh, you know, they don't have to stick with what I write. My my thoughts. They can um, read some of the other material that deals with Native American uh, sites, spirituality. Uh, um, we recently had. Uh, An article, I think, that a lot of people uh, might find challenging and thought-provoking cosmic cars and other road oddities by Albert Rosales.
2: I read that. I love his stuff.
3: And uh, he recently wrote an article for us, too, uh, that not all that glitters is gray or something like that. It was uh, exploring how, um, you know, how in recent years the gray entity being has recently become such a powerful archetype in the minds of many researchers and so on, but they were actually uh, quite a mixed bag of beings through the years, and uh, he, I think, brought that out quite quite well in his, his article.
2: Yeah. I like his stuff. He has the uh, that site called, I think, Humanoid Reports, mm-hmm. and... Um I, I almost hate to say it but when I read it it's like it's like when I was you know 6 or 8 years old reading UFO stories again because these are all new stories they're all they're all basically extremely strange not all of them but a lot of them are very strange and they don't fit in with what people would think would be a normal encounter uh with a UFO or a alien or whatever you want to call it um they go all over the map and the, the fact that he doesn't Really filter any of these out and say, "Well, that's not important." Is I think I think is important actually.
3: Right, right. Just to you know, get back to the facts and nothing but the facts. You know, <laughs> as they used to say on Dragnet years ago. Um, it's important to uh, revisit a lot of these old cases and uh, and look at how you know what's really going on with with all of these reports today as well. And a lot of these things are just getting kind of ignored. And, and uh, uh, you know, it's kind of like the psychologist refers to cognitive uh something that people really don't want to look at. They'll just sort of look the other way, and they'll just pick out the elements in cases or cases that they want to look at and, and ignore the rest.
2: Yep. Whoa. Not working. There we go. It's uh... – you find that in anything and in particularly I guess in something in the paranormal, particularly ufology because it's it 's marginalized anyway, so the people that are into it and have an ego in the in the in the hunt, I guess you want to call it it um, they, they goes back to what you just said about being uh being threatened by something that 's a little different um, and I, it, and like you said yeah it 's important to in, include everything uh, I had an interview with Carla Turner many years ago. And she said, "I she, the one quote I really liked from her was, I, I think some of the answers are going to be in the anomalous details that most people throw out.'"
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. She uh, she did certainly some really groundbreaking uh, studies there, and and her uh, unfortunately she her ecological career was way too short. Yeah. Yeah. If she could have been with us a little longer, and and. Uh, Presented more of her findings and and, and uh, pursued her research further.
2: Yeah, a lot of people wish she had, and a lot of people discovered her later. I think her, those the uh, three books she uh, wrote are selling for quite a bit now because they're kind of hard to find. Even the mass, there was one mass market paperback I think into the fringe, and uh-huh. then she had two others, and I can't remember the titles of them because I, uh, well, I just can't yeah. right now. But that they all had elements of. You know what we're just talking about here—things um, that don't fit in—that uh, she felt were important and uh, seemed to, in some cases, they were they were didn't fit in. But across the people she talked to, they seemed to, they, there seemed to be a commonality, which was kind of strange. you start to think, maybe it's the researcher, you know, or maybe it's the researcher somehow affecting the whatever is recalled i don't i don't know how to explain it, but um and and not in a way where I 'm saying well, the researcher is just leading people along, but maybe in sort of a um if you will a morphogenetic field type of way where it's uh, the stuff she 's looking at suddenly has a, a resonance in some certain way that's different from somebody like you know at the at the same time Bud Hopkins or Jacobs or uh, John Mack or something like that
3: right, I really miss the um the old uh publication flying saucer review that used to come out of england yeah uh they had you know all these detailed summary reports of cases that people you know a lot of times landings entities and all the weird elements you know brought out in in, in these instances and they would uh um they'd be from all over the world you know they took really a really a global um uh, yeah perspective on all of this yeah they did and uh, it was quite, you know, quite an informative publication, um, and that's, and of course, uh, yeah, the writings there that we just referred to about uh, Albert Rosales uh, reminds me, you know, because he brings in all these cases from, from just all over, taking pretty comprehensive global and historical perspectives.
2: Yeah, well, there was one on, uh, in uh, the o- Online Alternate Perceptions, which I think the only one there is now, like you said, um, that's uh, where he discussed mermaid reports throughout the ages, which I thought was fascinating and wonderful, and most people oh, don't yeah. want to see I that mean, because they um, think they'll be made fun of. But, no, I think that stuff's important.
3: I I remember a few years ago thinking to myself, well, you know, um, we know there's something going on here, but, what you know, what were those mermaid reports all about? And then, <laughs> and then he came out with this really great article. <laughs> um, it does make you wonder. I mean, you know, there's uh, there's a whole all these traditions from all over the world of these beings that are, you know, kind of kind of remind you of what the UFO beings uh, uh, do, like um, Gordon Crichton and Ann Ruffle. Yep. And uh, Rose, Mary, Ellen, Gilly have, uh, have all referred to the jinn, you know, and, and, and how the similarities of uh, the Muslim belief in djinn, the beings from the third order of creation, how they were actually these generally seen as like, uh, I guess, three to four foot tall beings who could shapeshift and walk through solid walls and abduct people, have sexual relations, and a lot of things that's similar to modern abducting greys, you know?
2: Yeah. Have you ever read um, the Evans Wentz book, The Fairy Faith in the Celtic Countries?
3: Um, you no, know, I've, I've seen references to it in quotes, but I've not actually read it.
2: Um, yeah, that's it. Well, I don't know how interesting it is to people now, but it was written in 1905 or something like that. What the author did was he walked around um, Britain, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and uh, well, not so much Britain because it's not a, uh, so much of it. Well, I guess it is, but Britain, Britain, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and um, uh, what's that called? The area of France that's uh, 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 I can't remember that area. Of I can't think of anything anymore, Brent. I'm getting old.
3: <laughs> I understand.
2: <laughs> anyway, he he basically took walking tours of these areas uh, in Europe and talk to the population there you know in the early 20th century when all this stuff was kind of dying out uh the oral tradition and talk to them about what their feelings about the fairy people were the the small you know the the little people or whatever you want to call them and he gathered up all these stories you read that book and you're like this is all this stuff pops up in the abduction literature yeah.
3: so what's going well, I mean, on there you know and 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 and, and you know Jacques Vallée's, uh Brittany, Magonia, that's the name of it, yeah. Uh, ...was a groundbreaking book there back in, what, 69 or 70? Yeah. Um, and he brought out a lot of these uh, comparisons. And he was really criticized a lot for it at the time, but I think, you know, he also opened a lot of eyes and, and, and generated new awareness. Um, I'm kind of surprised in a way when I... You know, I was part of this whole evolution back in the 70s, 69, I mean, late 60s into, you know, the mid-70s, and I felt like we were sort of moving away from just getting stuck in the whole nuts and bolts extraterrestrial theory thing, and, and it seems like um, all of a sudden, you know, bam, we just regressed instead of progressed in a lot of ways, mainstream ufology.
2: Why do you think that that happened?
3: Um. You know, I wondered. you know, like, um, um, well, when when the wave of, you know, like, um, of course we had Bud Hopkins with his intruders, and he started the Intruders Foundation, and and we had Willie Strieber with Communion, and then the Communion Foundation, all these support groups came up, and yeah. all the people who came forward because of the book had... You know, they came forward a lot of them with the abducting gray archetype scenario. And I think it just sort of um became the predominant thing and, and supported you know, seemed to support the uh the scenario that a lot of people were looking for and we lost we lost Heineck around about that time. He was kinda of like the uh kind of a balance wheel I think for
4: you
3: know Yeah. And he was starting he to be change cautious too. with his theorization stuff.
2: Yeah, and he was starting to change his ideas too, probably influenced by seeing so many reports and being around Valet so much.
3: Right. Right. Uh they would occasionally lock horns, him and Valet, but uh at the same time they were you know, they were good for each other. And yeah. uh, and certainly opened Heinek's eyes to different different things with Valet's uh perspective on on the French wave of uh uh, let's see. Oh, was it 1953? <laughs> and yeah. And so on. And, and other things. But, uh, yeah, I got to meet, uh, for the first time, watch, actually, Jacques Dali back in 2005 at uh, Virginia Beach at the ARE UFO conference. I was one of the speakers, too. And, and I was really impressed uh, to finally meet the man and, and uh, his wife, as well, who... Originally started out writing uh, uh, books with him, but had to back off, you know, because of uh, having to raise kids. But they—they uh, uh, they were both very, very sincere, very uh, serious, serious people.
2: Yeah, without being uh, without being really uptight about it. I've talked to him in person a couple of times um, for not extended period, you know, twenty or thirty minutes, but. Um, he's very open to a lot of things. And he's also, he's also, he can say one sentence and open an entire new line of thinking that you won't be, that you will not exhaust for months or weeks or whatever, maybe the rest of your life.
3: Right. You take it and you kind of, I mean, I've done that with his, his books, you know, you would, you would go back to it and reread a certain paragraph or a page and say, Hmm, let me think about this a little more, you know, and be kind of, cross-referencing it to something else that maybe you've read elsewhere or maybe someone told you, you know.
2: Right. Yeah, I, I I, mean, it's uh, it's no secret that people listen to this show that I, I'm a huge Valet fan. And at some point, I would like to get him on the show, but I wanted to do it when I was sure of my setup here so that I don't get embarrassed. And actually, it's working great now. So you're uh, you, you helping me with that to make sure that everything's right. So as, as we go on here, I can have you on again and not have, a, have to have a problem with <laughs> technical <laughs> Uh, difficulty because can you imagine interviewing Jacques Vallee and then suddenly the phone cuts off and then you have to do it again and again and again and you're just like well
3: you know. I I have had some technical issues uh when yeah, I yeah because you have a show too Blog Talk Radio uh, was uh, the live paranormal and um, site and and we my daughter and I Chandra and I we we hosted a show Alternate Perceptions then for over a year and and I had uh, Brad Steiger as a guest and. uh you know big name in the ufo field yeah definitely pioneer and i i I couldn't get him on the (laughs) phone uh through uh you know at that time i had to depend on someone on the other end of this uh, oh yeah 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 to connect so Uh we got on but you know i couldn't get brad on and uh i did a second show later and darned if it didn't happen again, so we called him up on uh, on the phone here in the kitchen, <laughs> <laughs> and I put it on speakerphone while my daughter had uh, her cell phone and, you know, transmitted the uh, the information to the studio. Wow. And we did the show, and we came out great. <laughs>
2: yeah i mean you you would not believe the jerry rigs or whatever you want to call them that i have to do around here to get the sound out this new one seems to be working great i don't know why i didn't think of this before just plug the plug the output output of the cell phone into the board works great so
3: all right yeah so that that, that's that's a new one it's functional that's what
2: what matters yeah at, at some you know the like I would like to talk to Valet, and uh, I would like I I would have liked to interview John Keel before he died, but it, it, in the last probably five years, it wasn't really that possible.
3: Yeah, I had uh, I had spoken to him on the phone a, a few times, and, and he, you know, written to him, and for a while he was on email. Yeah, and um, I would ask him about doing an interview, and he'd say, "Oh, you know, just pick out some published interview." He says, "I don't really have anything new to say," and. Uh, um, yeah, you know, he was wasn't really big on interviews. I don't think.
2: I've got so, an interview yeah. with him up on the site that my friend Ken Thomas did about ten years ago, ten or fifteen years ago. So that's that's a a rare unreleased John, uh, John Keel interview is actually on the excluded. I mean, I'm sorry, excluded middle on the uh, Roddy Mysterioso site. Okay. So, yeah, that's, a, that's the next best thing. I would love to have talked to him. I did speak to him in person a couple of times. I, we had lunch in New York. I was in New York, and I was like, well, um, the first time I was, somebody took me to him, and, and it, we introdu- he introduced me, and he said, oh, yeah, I know you excluded middle. So we had a nice talk, and then the next time uh, and we had a lunch, and then the next time we had lunch again with just me and one other person, and uh, I got to talk to him more extensively, and then a few times on the phone. But yeah he he was real uh, skittish about interviews. I think he was on he wasn't coast to coast once when the uh, Mothman movie came out.
3: Right. I I heard I didn't actually hear the show but somebody told me that uh Art Bell was interviewing him and said, "How come I've never heard of you?" <laughs>
2: <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. I have a recording of the show. That's one of the first things he said. It was like, uh But then you realize, you know, when you um Art Bell is really good radio interviewer, really good at creating a some sort of, I guess, the some sort of uh, what do you what would what, you call it? Like radio drama or he was really good at getting information out of people, uh, keeping them talking and putting you putting putting cliffhangers in really good radio person. Um, but he, he didn't, I don't think he studied up too much before he interviewed people, but if he had people on for a a long time, he'd get to know what they were into and what they were doing. Like, you know, they'd have, he'd have Whitley Strieber on all the time, or he'd have, um, Ed Dames on all the time. So he knew what those people were about. So it was a little different, but, um, I don't think he prepared too much, but it didn't matter really.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, because he just, uh, I guess he just really had a way of, uh, you know, um, some people don't like to be prepared uh, to know too much about the big person they're going to interview. They like to just go into it blind, and and they work better that way. But, uh, but I'd rather have a have a little biography I can read at the beginning of the show and know a little something.
2: Yeah, I mean I. <clears throat> I uh, read that biography, obviously, for you on uh, Coast to Coast. I sort of knew some of that. Um, I talked to you a little bit this afternoon and um, then just went through some of the issues of alternate perceptions and then realized we were in a lot of ways, we had kind of looked at the same things in sort of the same ways. So only I uh, typed up like 13, 14 questions. And I've only gotten through like two of them. So you see how that's going. (laughs) Sometimes I interview people and I, you know, and I have like 20 questions and I we do two of them because the rest of the time we're just talking about whatever, you know, if we get yeah. to a point where we're like, oh, well, and then I'll, I'll pop something else up. Um, well,
3: I, well, uh, you know, um, we'll have a, just a, like you said, a conversation here and, uh, we have explored a lot of the same, same areas. I read, uh, I remember, uh, in, uh, Nick Redfern's, uh, contact D or contact D, um, some of your thoughts on George Van Tassel. Yeah. And I recently, back in, um, not too long ago, um, I've got it written down here. I tried to prepare a little here, uh, um, Chad Meek, who is a, uh, nephew of George Van Tassel. I did an interview with him actually on the Blog Talk Radio. Wow. And, uh, for, uh, Alternate Perceptions, we did a print interview too. Uh huh. And, uh, let's see, that would have been in the, um, I want to say the September, September issue of, uh, number 176. They can go to apmagazine.info to our um, main site and they'll find a place where they can, uh, click and check out archives issues. And there's an interview with, uh, Chad Neek, who is the nephew of George Van Tassel. Mm hmm. And he's trying to put together a movie um, nah. that will be on, you know, about Giant Rock. I think it's called Giant Rock. So that's the tentative working title they're using now.
2: Yeah, I I don't know why I think I've heard of this, but I think I have. That's funny. You read my mind because the next question I was looking at was the uh, contactee question. <laughs> yeah, what? What? I, you know, I think I know why. Possibly, but why are you interested in the contactee experiences and and stories? Uh, do you think this contributes to the study of UFOs? Uh, most people would say no. It's just a bunch of kooks. But I, I beg to differ, and I think you do too.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, um, initially when I got in the field, I was influenced by a lot of mainstream thinking i was a teenaged ufo buff as keel would have called me (laughs) and uh i was thinking okay it's either nuts and bolts extraterrestrial visitors or it's planet venus on the horizon or hoaxes or whatever you know it's got some. but as i studied a little further and i was i was really influenced by john keel and and jacques Vallée, and and you know bad steiger uh because they presented alternative areas and as i began to interview people myself and correspond with people i found that those areas did exist they weren't made up by the authors as some you know ufologists at the time tried to dismiss it you know and uh and the contactee thing um you know you have a lot of the same elements in there um i i early on for several decades i uh Corresponded extensively and met a couple times with a psychiatrist named Dr. Berthold Swartz,
4: oh, yeah. who
3: has, you know, worked with John Keel some. And uh, they had uh, Dr. Swartz. Um, he he looked at all this stuff like we did, and he also became involved uh, in uh, studying Howard Menger. Ah. And I was in New Jersey and met with Dr. Swartz, and I was working on another case involving. Bigfoot. There was a window area not far from where he lived, where people were seeing Bigfoot, and also UFOs and having poltergeist type outbreaks, and uh, and um, anyway, one of the people who was my contacts there also knew all about Howard Menger, and even brought a follow-over to Telt one evening who had had a number of experiences uh, who Dr. Swart had also interviewed, it turned out, uh, while in, you know, while uh, associating with Howard Menger and going to his meetings, and he had seen uh, all kinds of UFO-type phenomena that just, you know, convinced them it was real, and um, they, you know, uh, Dr. Swartz had done a pretty extensive study, and then there were other people, uh, like Frances Sworn from Elliott, Maine. I interviewed her and her family, uh, she was an early 1950s contact who claimed uh, she would go into automatic writing and contact uh, a being named AFA. I mean, and there was a lot of controversy over her story, uh, mainly on account of uh, an officer, a naval officer, who had been to her house, later claimed that he could also do the automatic writing, and uh, was in Washington, D.C. one day and said they were outside, and some people supposedly went to the window and saw it turned out later, some of the people said they didn't see it, and so there was, you know, who saw it who didn't, you know, and was there anything there at all? Yeah. But but in talking with her and and, uh, her husband and her daughter and granddaughter, I mean, I heard stories about uh, little fairies, you know, and and driving down the road one day, and a craft follows her, her husband sees a craft following behind her, and one day this big bell-shaped object, uh, her and some other people in the car comes down like it's going to crash into the car, and it's sort of an Adamski-type bell-shaped craft and comes down in broad daylight and she thinks, oh, we're going to be, you know, crushed and then just vanishes in the thin air. You know, and I, I just found all that quite, quite intriguing, you know. I thought, well, how can we really dismiss all these stories, you know, just uh, and then talking with, uh, you know, Chad Meek about his, uh, you know, his uncle, you know, a lot of the same things, it seems. Uh, there were a lot of paranormal elements. Had experiences himself. Uh, he says that you know, it uh, there were things that were really going on back at the time, and and it wasn't just him. There were other people who were experiencing things as well.
2: Uh, my I don't remember what I said in Nick's book, but it, my take on the contactees is probably most of them made up most of their stuff, um, probably not even consciously. Um, but some of them had some sort of uh, precipitating experience which maybe kicks something off, maybe something internal that we don 't we're not we don 't really understand yet. Um, the other thing that comes to mind when you say that is uh, I know somebody in England who makes crop circles i mean he they they do it on on contract they go out with a, you know a bunch of boards and 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 rope and surveying equipment and and things like that in the middle of the night and do these things and sometimes in broad daylight. But right. you know, and he says he tells me, well, all of them are made by people. I mean, are made by people stomping on the. I said, like, well, how does that explain the, the uh, the heat ap- applied to it and the the burned uh, waxy residue on the outside and you know some of these things. He goes, well, that that's that that stuff doesn't happen. I said, like, okay, fine. <laughs> You're gonna <laughs> just you can deny it if you like. But the funny thing is, he says that when they're out there doing these things, that weird stuff starts to happen to them.
3: Yeah, this is something uh, I've heard, too. Uh, Andrew Collins over in England had mentioned that. Um, I think myself and, and, and Dr. Greg Little, who's real good friends with Andrew, and, uh, you know, that's kind of a curious thing. And then there's... there's um, To me, I found that I did an interview with Nancy Talbert, yeah. who's a real big crop circle investigator, and she was telling me being in Holland working with a guy who has these mediumistic abilities and
2: Robert Vanderbrook the
3: of light come down and, and suddenly there's you know formations in this field you know yeah and so I think you know okay some of them are hoax for sure I mean quite a few of them I'm, I'm sure you got to be really suspect especially with all these intricate designs that are coming out but on the other hand I you know it's like the contactees. I know those hoax and those hoaxes and, and things or delusions that occur but then on the other hand uh, you know, I think there's more to it again.
2: Yeah. Well, and the, what's important and it's going on here is two things. I think the cultural part of it, what do the, why did these people say what they said and who was attracted to them and two, what really was going on, at least in a precipitating, uh, experience. I mean, it sounds like something in, in a thousand years would be in a Bible somewhere.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and And some of these experiences for these people can be really um uh, metaphysical spiritual like um and you can see how you know um it's changed them you know seems to change their life quite profoundly and uh in a different kind of setting it it's like you say it could be like the uh something biblical,
2: yeah at least that that's how people would interpret it you know maybe uh, years from now when it, all the other things are stripped away from but our cultural baggage um so it's uh I, I think some of these things are too easily thrown out by a lot of people because of the bad uh publicity and the and the and the uh, hucksterism around it but yeah there's uh there's a lot of element which brings up another thing there's a lot of um elements in uh ufo Encounters that are not just people seeing lights in the sky, and that's routinely ignored too because of the uh, the uh, tabloid nature that people see in it. Um, one of my favorite cases, which I'm sure you know, is that one in um, Pennsylvania, I think 1967 or something like that, um, uh, was investigated by uh, oh, who's the guy? Stan Gordon, um, where a witness said he saw. Actually, more than one witness saw some lights in the sky, but also these Bigfoot entities walking around glowing.
3: Oh, yeah. That was uh, Dr. Swartz also was called in on that case and, and investigated that, and it's in his book, UFO Dynamics. And uh, that was, um, that was, I uh, seemed like about 13 witnesses total, and this, this big sphere came down and landed in this field, and it left a glow on the ground for a while, and, and, yeah. and it just. And then there was these two Bigfoot type entities that were walking along, uh, I think, a fence line. Yeah. And uh, they saw it, and and you know they uh, somebody took shots at it. One of them, the creature, one of the creatures screamed, and I think one of the witnesses and a state policeman uh, came real close to one of these creatures, and uh, you know backed off quick.
2: Yeah, and then a, one of the witnesses apparently had a had some kind of weird psychic break during the when when Gordon and somebody else came to find out what was going. They they got there like within what was it an hour or two of whatever had happened. And the yeah, guy the and, guy had started uh, yeah, having visions seen
3: and seen a uh, I think a Grim Reaper type figure. Yeah. had like a vision, and uh, one of the investigators I think at that point uh, suddenly started getting very faint and felt that there was some kind of overpowering odor or something. Um, and uh, there were all kinds of strange elements. The policeman, I think, verified that there was a glow on the ground for a while that they could actually take like a newspaper and, and, and hold it up close to this glow and read the, the print.
2: Yeah. And the, uh, one, the same witness apparently later had a sort of a, a life change, and he I guess he... Either got divorced or lost his girlfriend and moved out of the area, and had uh, apop- apocalyptic visions, and these kind of things are. I think this happens a lot more uh, frequently than people think because nobody follows up with these people.
3: Right. Um, I I visited uh, Gordon, um, Stan Gordon, myself back in 1975. I was traveling around, and uh, the country really looking into these stories and uh, that was one that fascinated me and and he had a lot of other stories similar and I spent, you know, two or three hours, I guess, at his home just talking about all these cases. He had hundreds of Bigfoot cases and a lot of them he had, you know, the UFO elements as well. Um, He was quite, quite convinced there was a a connection and we also talked about the paranormal Um, and he still gets, you know, a lot of these reports uh even you know years later. Uh, yeah. in fact we just posted one of them in um I guess uh maybe it was the last last issue, March issue of our our magazine, uh the February issue that he um uh, a summary of reports from last year involving, you know, Bigfoot and, and UFOs and things.
2: Yeah, and the uh, Bigfoot people hate the UFO people, and the UFO people hate the Bigfoot people, and they all of them, all the people, all of them hate the ghost people, and et cetera, et cetera. Um,
3: right, you know, which is uh, unfortunate. Well, yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, there seems to be, you know, I was called in on a case over in East Tennessee last year by a group that uh, is a paranormal group, but they've expanded. A number of them are expanding their horizons include cryptozoology and. UFOs and they called me in as a consultant, which what I thought was pretty neat and mm-hmm. so I went over there and, and looked in on a case that had, you know, ghost and UFO sightings all wrapped up in one. So um
4: Okay can you, are,
3: you know, can you some describe of them it be taking a more of an active interest in, in these areas. I now, have... I've come across some people who are abductees who are paranormal, you know, ghost hunters. Um yeah, a lot of your people who have experiences. Uh, um, I did a little profile survey on this some years back uh, with just people who said they were abductees or had close encounters, and, and found that a lot of them also have a lot of these, uh, you know, telepathic poltergeists, a lot of a lot of things that happen to them paranormally that uh, don't come out with just an average cross section of people. It's a little little more extended.
2: Uh-huh, is there any way you can describe what the the case you were just talking about that you were called in on
3: um it was a family um out in a rural area uh that reported uh, seeing uh, mainly this young man he's in his early twenties uh claiming that he was seeing strange lights flying around uh they had all all the family uh his his mom and uh dad and I understand his brother who I didn't meet, but had seen ghost figures and, uh, heard footsteps, nobody there, you know, voices calling their names, um, all, you know, at the same place that they have lived at for a number of years. And, you know, there was, uh, nothing really conclusive. Uh, we did some EVP work and we did get some things that, you know, we kind of scratched our head over, but, uh, We didn't actually witness anything ourselves, like you know, seeing a UFO or or a ghost. But uh, it was interesting.
4: So,
2: is there any any conclusion you take away from it? Besides, there's a lot of overlap that people routinely ignore.
3: Um. Yeah, there's. uh, That's the frustrating thing. I mean, once you've identified, okay, all these things. Are potentially uh, interconnected yeah uh, then what do you do with this? you know where do you <laughs> go from here you know um now for about three and a half years now I've been uh working with some some people quite closely who um are two of them were abductees and I got involved with them and strictly, you know, looking into uh, a par- doing paranormal investigations. I knew one of them for a number of years, going back uh, when I first interviewed him for the magazine about his uh, alien abduction memories, but he's also often described seeing ghosts and such, and he's developed an interest in ghost hunting, and so he invited me to meet uh, another gentleman, Brett Oldham, who uh, has a uh, halo paranormal group up in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, who's also an abductee and who just recently came forward uh you know out of the closet to share that with the world so I now have permission to use his name. But um I had tried, you know, in different investigations to uh do E V P work going back to the seventies and I never had any success. And uh since working with uh Brett and Sandy Nichols of the Alien Research Group out of Thompson Station, Tennessee, uh, I can now do it in my home here, and uh, and some of these things are, you know, pretty incredible. Um, there's a device called uh, a spirit box, which was tremendous controversy over that. Yeah, because you're you're using a uh, modified uh, digital radio where it's on continuous scan, and the theory, I guess, is that you know the white noise, you have more white noise uh, going back to the days of. Uh, Constantine Rudas, over in Germany, um, who did, you know, EVP work using white noise from radios.
2: Yeah. Rod Ive, Rod, um, what what was it? Breakthrough was the book.
3: Yeah. Breakthrough. And, um, anyway, the, um, when I first had this, you know, we were at a site over in Fayetteville, Tennessee, and it was like a hundred year old, uh, uh, Church building that converted to an art center now, and we were down in the basement, and people heard footsteps and thought maybe it was haunted. So, thought this would be a good place to uh, do a, a spirit box session, and I listened, and uh, I was trying to keep an open mind, but I thought mm, this, I'm just not getting anything. But I, while I was while I was down in the basement, I was thinking. Uh, I didn't say anything to anybody, but John Keel, you know, I knew there because he passed away uh, July 3rd of the year before. Yeah. And so, as uh, far as I could tell, nothing had come through. But um, months later, after I had the experience of hearing John Keel come through the radio and yeah. recording it more than, you know, several times, and. And uh one of these times was, you know, it had happened already, and so on July 3rd, which had been a year anniversary, decided, okay, uh, we're having a, a get-together, I want to see if we can contact John Keel, it was his anniversary of his death one year.
4: Uh-huh.
3: And uh, so we're uh, sitting around, got these loud, big speakers hooked up to the uh ghost box, um, and got it on full blast. And uh, they really, nobody else there really knew John Keel like like I did, you know, the information about him. And I says, John, what can you tell us about Jadu? <laughs> and all of a sudden, a male voice comes to the speaker saying Jadu. Eh? <laughs> and I said, yeah, uh, yeah, what can you tell us about Jadu? You know, we're all kind of stunned. And says, into the fire, into the fire.
2: <laughs> and, sounds like what Keel would say, too.
3: <laughs> you know, and some other stuff, but he was fading in and out. I couldn't tell what everything was. It was something about take it out, uh, go outside or something. And I had no idea what that was about. But uh, uh, Brett, who had seen Bigfoot up in Ohio years back when he was about 16 or 17, he's very curious about that subject as well. And he asked, uh, says, John, what can you tell us about Bigfoot? And a male voice says, smuck Bigfoot, see? <laughs> <laughs> and then um, another voice says, see? And then another voice says, see? So then I, I thought, man, this, thing, this is just too damn interactive here. So I had some index cards, and I wrote down different things like M.I.B., Ivan Sanderson, and... Uh, and then it was a little after midnight. We did a second session. And um, it was mainly me and Brett and Sandy around this uh, coffee table. Uh, the ladies had pretty well drifted off. And, <laughs> and so we were going at it. And I said, okay, I've got something written down on these cards. I want to see if they could tell us what I've written down. And we... uh I think it took about three minutes we get like M. it was mib actually and then finally a male voice quickly says mib and i just about fell out of my chair and uh another one was ivan sanderson and it sounded like an oriental voice saying ivan Sanderson like that
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know? and so then i you know I, we really for several months after that we were uh doing these experiments Right and left, was writing down on sheets of paper and so on uh, what uh, you know, seeing it, spirits could tell us, you know, what we were listening for or what we wanted to hear, and uh, and it was working. And in fact, one time it was uh, Brett had come up with um, let's see, Black Dog, and a voice says Black Dog, which we we all we had several recorders and recorded, and then. And we heard this in real time. I don't know if it was the same male voice or two different male voices, but they went, Bark, bark. (laughs) 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 And uh, we were trying one time to get John Keel to speak to us, and it took actually reviewing the audio. I mean, he wouldn't... We asked him to say his name, and it was like pulling teeth. And so... uh, when I played the audio back, you could hear this boy I'm asking John, can you say your first and last name? And he said for a pizza and we had <laughs> just had two big oven baked pizzas.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> and uh I we also um and then finally later on when we were holding up sheets of paper, we had like Brad Steiger and other people listed on it, uh, I got a clear voice saying john keel so i guess finally he gave up and said okay i'm gonna give him my name
2: <laughs> the other thing i can think the other model for that that i can think of when you tell me this was that um your collective whatever might have been responding to it and somehow getting that through the radio not involving keel at all
3: well so yeah that you know um it's intelligent interactive responses that's all i can really say um, yeah There's, to my mind, there's an intelligence that's there, but, um, a lot of times it's it's playing a kind of a trickster role, too. Uh, sometimes it's straightforward, sometimes it's sort of tongue in cheek. Like, after Dr. Swartz had passed away, um, uh, which was actually, I think, a couple months after we began this with John, you know, John Keel Communications, uh, Dr. Swartz passed away, and I, tried to reach out to him, and I was asking him what book did he write that I had a chapter in, and his book was UFO Dynamics. Yeah. And it was, every time we got to where he was going to say UFO Dynamics, we got UFO blah, 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 you know. Yeah. (laughs) And I couldn't couldn't make out Dynamics, so finally I got him, asked him again during another session, and I got UFO D. And I went through our correspondence, and I found two letters where he abbreviated UFO dynamics is UFOD. So I took that as an answer. And um there were um uh, there were just but in the meantime during that first communication, you know, I'm asking him what is the name of the book? And it's like he's saying, Oh, book, yeah, you know and then he tries to say it and you know, it's it's like you're hearing someone in the background talking. And uh and then anyway I thought, okay, I'm hearing Dr. Swartz, we're gonna we're gonna get some meaningful dialogue but we got um some other things like um Brett asks, uh who were the um, in the book of Genesis the beings who mated with the women of old and a male voice says Swartz <laughs> <laughs> and uh we've gotten some other things like that and, and I have my grandson um He's five now, his name is Connor, and uh, two or three years ago we were doing a session and we were trying to get him in the next room to play a video thing on the computer to distract him and we had the spare box clicking away here with recorder two recorders I guess here in the kitchen and we played it back later you could hear a um, voice say uh, "Swartz, can't you please be as sweet as Connor?" and this other voice says, "Nope sweeter." <laughs> <laughs> and uh have you ever,
4: have
2: you ever tried anything where nobody in the room would know the answer to a certain thing and see if you could check it out later
3: um well what i did do one time um there was a uh, a lady from australia an abductee and uh i've been contacted by her a book publicist in california and they'll want me to, to interview her so I agreed, and I said, would you be up for an experiment? So I said, go ahead and at a certain time, try to send a certain word or words to me, and I'm going to have this spirit box uh, open for about two minutes, and uh, if our time isn't precise, I don't think it really matters, but I'm going to send you the audio before you tell me what the words are, and... And then I want you to email me, you know, tell me what it is, and show me any correspondence you had prior to where you were hashing this over. And the, the word was actually fingers crossed. And because uh, she and another abductee in Australia had an experience where uh, they were trying to do some kind of healing thing, and this being spoke uh out of thin air and said, keep your fingers crossed.
4: Uh-huh.
3: Alright, can just keep your fingers together? I am sorry. It was keep your fingers together. Oh, okay. And, and I got, uh, in playing in this audio, uh, it was fingers together, a male voice. And they were, they were impressed by that. I thought, well, okay. But again, you know, I, I did it with someone else who was, uh, an abductee in Alabama and it, it backfired. Uh, they, they came up with five things they wanted to send and, uh, none of it came out. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did this with Brett and uh, Gina, his wife, uh, for a while. We would do we would do back and forth things ourselves to test this. I would not know what they're sending me. They would not know what I was sending them. And one of the things was Pink Hippopotamus, which Hippopotamus came out on on their uh, recording. And uh, <laughs> and there was some some things that I got of theirs that they were sending that uh, seemed to sound pretty much like it. So you know, um, we've done that, uh, and to us that was pretty impressive
2: at the time. Have you, when when using that spirit box, so have you ever tried to do an experiment where you um, would ask a question that nobody in the room might know, so that you wouldn't that you wouldn't have a um, some sort of subconscious cueing or something going on? whereby, like I mentioned before, that the, the interaction was not with an external, um, agency, but with somebody within, you know, somebody in the group.
3: Um, yeah. Um, we have tried to get, uh, I tried to get it one time, like, tell me what the, uh, headlines of the newspaper tomorrow are going to be. But that, um, I did that a couple of times, but I never got anything that, uh, Panned out. I, oh, okay. I scoured the headlines, and there was nothing there. But I have I have found, and again, it's it's kind of like the mind reading thing. Um, we have had some success at that. It seemed, and and I would be working on something and be thinking of someone, and then later, doing a you know spirit box, and then that name just pops up. Right. Oh, okay. And and see, was the thing on Keel. Now here's the thing that that impressed me too. Uh, uh, I go back to that first time i you know was exposed to the spirit box session in that basement of that church over in fadville tennessee that i mentioned about six months later after i already had all these different john keel type things that were going on um i found this cassette tape and that was one of the first times i you know during a spirit box i'd use the cassette tape since then i've been using a digital recorder which i i like much better but um I was looking at all this stack of audio tapes and I was thinking, you know, cassette tapes, what are these? And one of them I put in, I recognized, oh, that's uh, one of our spirit box sessions. So I listened a while and uh, there was a section where Brett asked uh, my wife, Joan's brother, to say his name. And he says, say your name now. And right when he said, say your name now, a male voice said, keel. And see, I hadn't told anybody. I just kept that to myself, and I wanted to see if Keel was out there, and I did not hear that in real time. But there it was on the audio. So I listened a little longer, and then what I heard next, um, and played it back a number of times, it really kind of blew my mind. I heard one of my first cuss words. Uh, After Keel, it was a a male voice with a southern accent that said, F-U, except because they said it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And there was a bit of a, uh, I think there was some angry words back and forth. Uh, but um, anyway, uh, later, you know, this, my wife Joan listened to the audio, and she agreed it sounded like her brother's voice. But she said, I've never heard him talk like that before.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and since then, uh, Keel and her brother Jesse have been on you know, during thing showed up during a single session, I'd say, I wonder what's going on. Are they getting along better now or what? <laughs> <laughs> but I was um I don't know, some of it's pretty mind boggling but it's 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 frustrating too because, you know, uh you get these very brief things and although it connects with what you're looking for, um, you know, it's uh it's very difficult to tell, um, you know, if it's if it's really the person you're trying to reach or not. I know that I, you know, we had lost a friend, um, and I was just using the recorder and here at the house, and no one was around except my wife on the other end of the house was doing a, a painting in her studio, and uh, so it was very quiet, and I was talking <laughs> to this recorder here at my. Desk here, in my little home office, off yeah. the other end of the house, and I uh, we had just said goodbye to our friend who passed away, if, you know, very recently, mm-hmm. and I, um, I got what sounded like her voice, very faint female voice, uh, saying this you know, the secret is deep, and of course she knew I was, I was interested in the whole life after death question and many other things as well, um, of course I. I already knew the secret was deep, I don't know where else to go with that. But uh, you know, we've had a number of things like that just using the recorder, where uh, people who, you know, loved ones that we knew in this life passed on, it seemed like we were getting messages, but uh, uh, it's nothing you could say was, you know, a great revelation. Kind of comforting, though, uh, you know, at, at times it felt comforting, but uh, then other times uh, you get this trickster element and they're cussing you out and
2: <laughs> you don't know what to think. Well, that's, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of these, uh, whatever you want to call them, spirit communication devices seem to have a history of tricksterism involved with them, like uh, anything from something playful and silly and stupid to something that actually possibly might have hurt people. Um I mean, the, the typical thing is the, the Ouija board and how the, I used it one time for a few weeks with some friends, and it started giving us all this information about uh, so-and-so that lived here in these years or just passed away, and they'd give us an address or a phone number, we call it, and it the, strangely enough, the numbers they give us did not exist. I mean, it, I don't know how they picked numbers that didn't work, Um uh, the funny thing was, we went to a part. We stopped doing it after a while because it just became frustrating. Um, yeah. But we we went to a um, a party and we were uh, talking to somebody uh, about it, and they said, "Oh yeah, well, I was using the the, the uh, Ouija board too." And so we talked about it a little bit, and then we found out we were talking to the same. Uh, I said, "What was the uh, what What was the name you got?" And he said, "Oh, he said, what was the name you got?" to me and i said queenie and he said oh you got her too huh <laughs> so either he was oh. playing with me or they ended that guy independently got the same thing and the same treatment right yeah
3: there's you know there's something there that's um uh, independent interactive uh it seems and and you know you um but apparently we've you know we've, we've heard a lot of times the same like when we're getting a message, or like a name or some kind of information that apparently they want to convey to us, it'll come through more than once. Uh, a lot of times, and it's as though they know that they've got just uh, brief little windows of opportunity to send a brief message, yeah. and so they'll try to they'll they'll do it several times, and you'll catch more than one one time when they're saying something and so that suggests to me that um, to make sure they get it across they're they're saying you know somebody over there is, is repeating the message over and over until they hopefully get it get it through to us
2: well ultimately a lot of these things have they seem to the way you describe them have very personal meaning for you and the people involved but not really anybody outside of the experience which seems to be sort of the uh the uh, A lot of the deal with the paranormal things uh, things are very personal to the person that it happens to, but they can't really convey that information information really in any basic uh uh way that makes people either believe them care or whatever because it's not it's not personal to that person and it may maybe that's like a maybe that might be a connecting um principle here with with a lot of these paranormal things it's just the the relevance to the person that experiences it.
3: Right, and, and one thing I learned, uh, from, uh, Brett and, and Gina with their work, and they, they've helped, uh, really, I think, console a lot of people who had loved ones and had impressive, uh, sessions using, you know, they prefer to call it the spirit box, because ghost box suggests, you know, it's an earthbound, and they, they, uh, they try to work with ghost or, uh, people who are, uh, beings who are more highly evolved. But, uh, they um they've had some in fact we, we went to uh, Alabama to um uh, visit a, a woman who had lost her daughter and it was really impressive, you know, it, it, we were picking up what uh appeared to be her daughter's voice. She said she recognized her daughter's voice and mommy. And I mean it, you know <laughs> uh it uh kinda made us all a little bit a little bit teary eyed, you know. And so these sessions can be quite quite powerful and meaningful for you know, a lot of a lot of people and and uh, seem to do do them good, you know.
2: Yeah, um, the first thing you would think from a skeptic is like, well, the the woman wanted to hear that, so whatever voice comes through, whatever it comes from, whatever it sounds like, she's going to say that. But the the other side of that coin, for a lot of people, they 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 don't realize or don't want to think about is whether it's quote unquote real or not. The person feels better.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, we 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 document it with with doing the recordings and uh, trying to be objective and. And, um, she actually admitted that she really was surprised. She didn't, uh, she didn't think we'd, I'd been there before and, and we hadn't got anything, uh, you know, a couple of years before. So she really wasn't expecting that anything was going to come out of this visit. Uh, and, uh, she has since, you know, tried doing EVP work herself and also got, got some things on her own now so like myself she's been able to uh since having this experience kind of kind of replicate it
2: yeah it's funny though it seems like in a lot of the paranormal uh, if it's experimental paranormal stuff people that really believe it get results expect things you know it's like i i really think this is possible or i really believe it already and this can be independently verified and people that are quite skeptical We'll get a very strong result, as if it's, as if whatever it is is throwing it in the person's face. People down the middle, like me, never get anything.
3: <laughs> well, you know, uh, I know how that feels. I mean, I was, uh, I was um, skeptical. And I thought I'm just, I'm just on this. Uh, I mean, I'm hearing radio stations flipping by. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to have any experience. I, I'm the one who goes out. Someone calls me in the middle of the night and. Says, hey, it's out here over the swamp, and I go up there and there's Venus, you know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for calling me. <laughs> I mean, I've had a lot of experiences that were very disappointing. And, uh, this was, you know, this was this was different. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at first I was thinking, okay, I don't know why anybody would want to go to this much trouble, because, I mean, we were like hours and hours doing this work now, I was yeah. thinking is there somebody out there with a hidden microphone who's monitoring us from out, outside somewhere and I mean we were going all over different parts of the state I mean they'd have to be traveling along with us and then you know eventually got to where okay I'm going to get me one of these radios and try it here at the house and darned if we weren't getting the same things on our own uh, me and my wife our daughter you know we just sit here and do a session and we've done a lot of sessions now, and uh, we, uh, in fact, we get the same being uh, named Bishop <laughs> who who comes through.
4: What? A, really?
3: A, yeah, his name is Bishop, <laughs> and uh, he comes through as he does for Brent and Ziner, you know, and uh, helping out. And it's weird, you know. Uh, a lot of times you'll hear your name, they'll, you know, address to Brent, you know. Yeah, it's Brent here. <laughs> Anybody listening in would think we're crazy, but. Maybe we are. But anyway.
2: Well, that happened to uh, Rowdy. It happened to, uh, who's that guy, Raymond Cass. It happened to a lot of early researchers. They would start hearing their name, and other people would hear their name, too. It wasn't just some hallucination they had.
3: Right. I mean, I I remember thinking, well, I've never heard my name, and uh, uh, my wife and I were visiting a woman of Native American ancestry out near Albuquerque, New Mexico, a few years ago. I was... uh, 56 at the time. And, uh, I, I heard, I heard a, a voice yell through this open window, Brent. And we were all sitting at a kitchen table and I looked around, uh, at this woman and a male friend and, and my wife and I chuckled and I said, well, that's quite a coincidence. And I said, what? You know, that, that voice <laughs> said my name, no one else had heard it. And, uh, then later that evening, I'm interviewing this Native American woman uh, about some of her experiences. And in the recording, when I play it back later, there's a female voice, this time, saying Brent. And uh, that was it, you know. So I thought, well, now I've heard my name twice, <laughs> <laughs>
2: you know. The only um, time I've heard my name yelled like that at me was when I had taken too many too many doses of Trucker Speed, driving out to Utah trying to get a, a few days of hiking in, and I couldn't go to sleep because I had so much you know whatever like I said uh, caffeine or whatever the hell they put in those Trucker Speed things they have at the truck stops.
3: Yeah,
2: and well, I, I was so, every time I, was I tried so to over. go to <laughs> every time I tried to go to sleep, I'd hear somebody yell my name. Huh. Quite clearly, like they were standing outside the hotel room I was in. Yeah, I'm sorry, well, I, I stepped over you. Go right ahead.
3: Maybe, maybe they were. Oh <laughs> 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 me, um, but um, oh yeah, there's something I wanted to ask you about the giant rock. Um, when I mentioned this to Chad Meek, he didn't seem to be uh, familiar with it, but I was telling him. That um I understood that on giant rock there was a an engraving of a scorpion figure,
2: yes, there is i 've seen it,
3: okay. He was not aware of that, and he says, well, I know there's a lot of graffiti and stuff, and i said no i I've, I've read that there's a they believed it was related to the Native American presence um scorpion figure and, I
2: think uh, so i mean it's it's kind of, it's there if you tell me it 's a scorpion, that's what it looks like. Um, everybody thinks that's what it's look like. Looks like I've never been able to because it's high up on the rock. It's like you know, twenty thirty feet up um, on the west. Yeah, sorry, east side of the rock. Um, uh, my my friend Barbara Harris, who uh, uh, is associated with the Morongo Basin Historical Society out there, she she showed it to me, and uh, yeah, yeah, that that is there. And uh, like I said, I don't know for sure if it's. Something that 's um, that it is an actual pictograph because that 's what it looks it 's not a petroglyph it 's painted on the rock i 'm um, not sure if it 's an actual pictograph, but um, well, a lot of people seem to think there is yeah it 's it 's probably people don 't mention it one because it 's hard to see, and two, if they mention it too much, somebody will climb up there and graffiti over it yeah it 's you know it 'd be kind of hard to get up there, I think but You know, if somebody wants to, they could. Uh, She knows a lot of history about Giant Rock, and she was on my show once, and we talked about... Um, Kreitzer, the guy that was originally under the rock that made friends with Van Tassel and what he was doing out there and how he how he died and people said it was um, the sheriffs were there and they thought he was a German immigrant and that he was going to be uh, he was somehow collaborating with the Nazis or something during World War II and that has nothing to do with it it was all based on um, people being um, suspicious of him out in the desert there he wasn't really right. doing anything illegal or collaborating with Nazis or anything that anybody could find uh, and he wasn't a hermit either. He actually built the airport there, graded the thing so that people could come out there, and built the built a few buildings out there and 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 hollowed out that area under the rock that um, Van Tassel basically inherited after Kreutzer was uh, killed.
3: Mm, yeah, yeah, I, I think that he um, in the shootout that he had some explosives down there and and uh, it blew up or
2: something or yeah i think either either it ignited somehow from the because they i think they were shooting at him or they lobbed in tear gas or something to get him out of there and it set it off um so he did not he did not shoot himself kill himself or whatever he the the uh when you look at the police report, they try to cover it up, but it, it seems pretty certain that the what they did was, you know, lob in something or try to smoke him out or something, and that that um, he was basically killed by overzealous cops that were just they're basically coming out there to question him, I think, and he got he got cantankerous and said, "Screw you, get away from here, you know, get off my land." And it wasn't his land; it was government land that he was leasing, but. Right. Um, it was it was a, just a bad scene all around, you know, bad communication, obstinacy on his part. Like I said, overzealous police, and um, that's how he died. But before that, he had befriended uh, uh, George Van Tassel because he, I believe, Van, uh, Van Tassel took his car in to be f- uh, repaired, or either that or. Kreitzer did, I'm not sure, but this was in Santa Monica. They met, they talked about, Kreitzer told him about Giant Rock after Van Tassel said he was very interested in, like, the desert. He told him to come out, and they they developed a friendship that way, and and, uh, Van Tassel basically took over the property after uh, Kreitzer died. Right.
3: That that reminds me, uh, when I was communicating with uh, Chad Meek, I... uh, I tried to do a spirit box, and I was telling him, you know, about what I was getting. I sent him some audio, and he, it was really inconclusive. You know, he said it sounded kind of like uh, his uncle's voice, George Van um, But there was uh, there was one session where I had uh, tried to communicate with him, and uh, I got a voice saying, a male voice saying, this is Al Bender. <laughs> and i thought well it's the same period 1953 you know he's men in black um but uh what was interesting is i had talked to chad about the men in black and then lo and behold here comes al bender <laughs> through the uh spirit box there and, yeah but um, al
2: bender is apparently still alive oh really yes he lives in los angeles in fact Jim Mosley published a picture of his house and where and uh, his address. I'm too scared to go over there and bother him because I don't want to I don't want to upset him in his, his extremely old age. And I, he would will never talk about the men in black or UFO stuff again. But I know where he lives. He lives basically 20 minutes from me.
3: Huh. Well, uh, he's got to be well, in his uh, late uh, 80s or early he 90s. passed so. on long ago.
2: Um, nope, that guy's still alive
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, then if that's the case, we know we know that albender wasn't uh wasn't the deceased albender anyway
4: yeah, but it could be A
3: voice who said he was you know said albender hi uh, the uh the thing is we we had a uh, someone a uh, um, a nephew of my wife's who passed away a while ago. And, we were getting first and last name, and uh, one time um, we got first, middle, and last name come through the spirit box. Uh-huh. The only thing was, the middle name was supposed to be Dean, and they said Drew. But they got the first and last one right, and they got, you know, the letter. And we kind of wonder sometimes if, you know, we hear what we call cross talk, like, like um, before they answer us, we're hearing, like, there's people communicating back and forth, and we can kind of tell they're talking about the question we asked. And um, so wonder if someone, you know, is passing on the information because someone else can't. They know the answer, and they say, okay, you know, say this name, first, last, middle, and they, they pass it on, but they mess up on the middle name. Hmm. So you never know who you're talking to, <laughs>
2: Well, two things about that. One, I would love to hear some of this stuff. And two, my middle name is Dean. Oh.
3: <laughs> What's you know, going on with your and, spirit and one box of, One there? of our main contacts is Bishop. Well, yes, I know. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, man.
2: Yeah, well, see, the, the, uh, it's funny because I, I inter- when I interviewed, to bring up Carla Turner again, I the first time I met her and I interviewed her the night before, um, I was staying at... A, it was at the Austin MUFON uh, in 94 or 3 or something like that. I stayed at this guy's... Uh, West Nations, who used to publish um, Crash Collusion magazine. I was staying at his place, and the night before, I woke up at... Uh, I went to sleep at about, like, 2 in the morning or something. I woke up at 2.22, 3.33, 4.44, and 5.55. Freaked me out. And then, so I went... And then I I've had this horrible feeling the whole night, like... Just a horrible bad feeling. So then and for no reason whatsoever. I mean we weren't talking about it. I never read about such a thing. The next day she said, That's something people have told to me waking up at those times. She said, Maybe yeah, I should be interviewing um, you. I said, I don't know about that. But the funny thing is that happened the night before. And then two days later when I left, he said that his neighbor said that somebody came over and they they were to when he was gone, they saw him going up to his water heater which was on the outside of the building, and he said a fire started there. It went out really quickly, but he said these two guys that were dressed kind of like repairmen went over to his water heater, looked like they were doing something, and then a fire started. <laughs> so I, it's it, has this happened to you when you start investigating these things? Some of these things start rubbing off on you somehow, and, so, and in ways that you would never expect, and, you, and you, you did not plan for and didn't say, oh, well, that's, you know that's something that happens to everybody.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, some people seem to have like uh I I felt like John Teal, you know, he had some kind of psychic ability to begin with, some receptive some sensitivity, yeah. receptiveness. And you know, he uh he had a lot of weird things going on in in his life, you know, like that. Um getting the phone call and went out on Mount Misery Long Island and seeing the black Cadillac with the two Oriental figures and he follows them and then they disappear where there's no place to disappear from, you know. Um, No, um, you know, the road just dead ends. And, uh, you know, these things become meaningful to, you know, the person having the experience and and he makes these connections. And uh, Keel, really, you know, I kind of wonder sometimes about the Men in Black, there was a whole cluster of things back at that time and i wonder how much of that he by his writings and his interest uh influenced a lot of a lot of these other events that unfolded you know
4: yeah
2: well it goes back to the uh people making the crop circles what are they doing there what are they calling up what are they what forces are they you know what are they stirring right. up in the local area there
3: right it's um you know we tapping into the collective unconscious as young as would say or uh, is there a trickster um, element in the a parallel universe coming through that can appear and disappear and uh, never get caught? Um, or, uh, well, I guess occasionally an extraterrestrial visitor would come around every once in a while, maybe. But I, I just, just uh, I think it's a whole lot stranger. I know Valley once made the comment that if it turned out it's visitors from outer space he's going to be disappointed because uh he thinks it's something much more significant you know
2: yeah or a lot different than we think it is and that 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 part of valet and keel rubbed off on me permanently where uh, yeah the quote was if it turns out to be i'll be very disappointed if it turns out to be people coming here from other planets in flying saucers yeah because it it it's there's so many more things going on with the phenomenon than just that and and it seems like our expectations and our 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 enculturation and everything else is is playing into whatever we think it is
3: yeah i uh one of the cases that i uh case that I called Dr. Swart then on myself, Uh, he was living in New Jersey at the time, and I was living in Maine, and we had a report of uh, two young men who had encountered some sort of a craft at, you know, actually more than one craft this one night, and apparently they had missing time, so one of them was hypnotized, the other one didn't want to be hypnotized, but recalled, uh, you know, these uh, small beings uh kind of similar it was noted later to uh travis walton's uh beings and and um i think maybe that you know there was some contamination there um even though you know we tried to keep that from happening
4: yeah
3: but there were uh dr swartz became interested in it because there were so many psychic elements i mean the night that it happened the young men came back uh to uh uh you know trail home one of their parents and uh stayed there and that's where we we met them when uh, myself another investigator first went out and they were quite visibly shaken by all appearances um and they were describing paranormal stuff uh one of them heard a voice say ufo mm-hmm. um I think I think what happened, the door opened the front door of the trailer and a voice said UFO and there was nobody there. And uh, and then a uh an ashtray rose up from a countertop in the kitchen several inches and then dropped back down. And they were having like visionary experiences, uh, seeing uh strange strange uh blobs of light and things going in and out of the wall. Uh, crossing through the sky. And um, a little later, I met a uh, an experiencer I had met before who was a researcher and had had a number of experiences. And uh, she wanted to share with me these visions she started having. And this case began on October 27, 1975. Her vision started October 26, 1975. And a lot of the stuff she was describing was the same, same kind of strange visionary-type things that these Two young men have been experiencing in their their situation.
2: And uh, you, you better stop now because uh, my birthday is October twenty sixth.
3: Oh well, <laughs> I'm not Why? kidding. <laughs> why stop now we're having fun you
2: know <laughs> i'm just joking go ahead it's just becoming very strange you've mentioned uh, spirit box with bishop and a middle name of dean and now my birth date in another case so go right
3: ahead <laughs> <laughs> let's see where else we can go with this oh <laughs> uh, but um Sometime before that, and i I wish I could say exactly when um because I remember writing on a calendar, but I wasn't sure what the significance was of it, but um I was going through in my life trying to figure out uh, uh my my spiritual direction,
4: <laughs> yeah,
3: and uh you know i was I was reading a book at this time that suggested maybe these things are of the devil and so on, so I was going through this little phase, yeah and uh I had just that summer of nineteen seventy five I traveled around the country interviewing lots and lots of people as I told you stan gordon and and uh various people who were uh researchers and contactees and so on and uh then I returned home in maine, and I entered a de- a state of kind of depression there for a while. And I thought, I can't figure it out. I'll just God I'm gonna leave it in your hands, and I'm just gonna let go about two nights later. I uh, I have an experience where I felt like I was uh, crossing the floor of the bedroom, headed towards uh, the, the lights route. I just crawled in the bed earlier. It was around 11 o'clock at night.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And I'm headed toward the hallway where the light was on in the hallway. And uh, suddenly I'm aware that someone behind me was holding me back from, you know, in the middle of the room and stop. And instead of looking back like I normally would do, Uh, and also I didn't actually feel anyone touching me, but I just knew there was someone behind me, but I was, I knew not to look back at them. I continued to look toward the, the open door in the hall and all of a sudden there were like hundreds of these small marble sized translucent, pulsating white balls of light just whizzing around, (laughs) um, kind of similar to some of the weird stuff these two young men would later describe to me. They were seeing in their visions. And um, I'm thinking this whole thing was real at the time, uh, although for some reason I wasn't reacting. And then I'm laying on my back and looking up at the ceiling and saying, whoops, what just happened? Um, The thing was that two days before when I was praying about, you know, can you show me what what this is all about? I said, but I want to see, but I don't want to be scared. And there was absolutely no fear in this experience. So you know it was interesting um it was one of the weirdest things that you know i'm I'm not someone who sees much of anything, you know, <laughs> like I said it was uh you know it's been a lot of this uh oh, that's just Venus on the horizon, you know that yeah. sort of thing, but um this seemed real, but at the same time, I realized there's what they call trans logic, you know um I was not thinking like I would in a normal situation. Uh so I would call it sort of like a uh prayer induced visionary state, which I think is kinda interesting. Yeah. And maybe maybe connects with, you know, what later came up in this other case that I was I was looking into. Uh which was what? Uh, you know, the, the abduction case. Uh oh, okay. that I called Dr. Swarton on whether were these altered states where they were seeing, you know, these things and maybe this was also prepping, you know, coming together, um, preparing for this. I don't know. Um, I do know that a, uh, experiencer in Florida, uh, who had been through close encounters and Benjamin Vader type things, MIB-ish things, uh, and also began investigating Bigfoot, uh, over in Brooksville, Florida, and told me, now Brent, uh, Bigfoot is different than the other stuff. Well, she changed her mind later.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> but uh anyway, she sensed that I was having a depression, but everything was gonna work out all right. I I you know, I didn't communicate that before and somehow she uh she seemed to pick up on what I was what I was going through at the time. Right. And uh there were people who were suddenly, you know, writing me letters with ideas about Jung's archetypes of the collective unconscious and how it could be significant to things that, you know, are going on in our UFO case studies. And, you know, and all of a sudden here I am working on this case that's a perfect match for all that kind of stuff, you know.
2: Yeah. Um, well, we're all it seems like everybody's looking at the same strangeness or the same stripes of strangeness. And, and and recently in the last year, I've been pushing this idea of you know how much does and see what see how youth feel about it. How much does does a researcher or a witness or a contactee or whatever whoever is perceiving this weirdness? How much do they bring to the experience? And I'm I'm starting to think that the the creativity of the human mind to mold whatever this thing is that somebody's experiencing is is not given nearly enough credit.
3: Yeah. Um, And a lot of people who are um, abductees, contactees, uh, I've noticed a lot of people that I've met, and I I think I've seen some references by Keel and and maybe some others, there a lot of them are artists. Um, Hmm. We had a case, uh, I know, up here in Liberty, Kentucky. Uh, I, I knew some of the we investigators and I went down one time to Liberty and, and talked with them in nineteen seventy six, three women and and I think they were all just gifted artists who could sketch out what they were what, you know, they had seen from their memories, the craft and uh later when Dr. Sprinkle hypnotized them, uh, could sketch out the beings and in the interior of the craft from, you know, their memories. And um other people I had met, you know, could could just uh do these great artistic renderings. I met uh, Betty Aderson Luca uh, back in 2005 at at the UFO conference. She was one of the speakers, too, at uh, the Association for Research and Enlightenment, Virginia Beach, Virginia.
2: Wow, I'm glad she's still around. At some point, I would like to meet and talk to her.
3: Well, she, uh, we did this, uh, which is another area in itself, Uh, I was demonstrating and i passed out these replicas of the proving whistling vessels
2: ha, i was uh, going to ask you about that next go
4: ahead
3: <laughs> they're uh they were replicas of a pre-columbian proving whistling vessel that was used in ancient ceremonies apparently but you know nobody really knows exactly what kind of st- you know other than just spiritual uh but they were um anyway these were distributed around, and I asked people to blow into them, and we passed them out to people in different parts of the conference room where, you know, they wouldn't just in one area, they would be one over in this corner and one over in that corner, and kind of give them, you know, an acoustical um, uh, balance. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, Betty was there, and she had this really, really powerful vision, she said, and and then she uh, sketched it out, and it was beautiful in detail. I've got it uh, posted and up on the wall of uh, this large stone with fire, a ring of fire around the base of it, and this big tall um, hawk or eagle or something standing behind the stone. And uh, she said that's what she saw while the, you know, and a lot of people have, um, they're in the, you know, with the whistles, have uh, experienced uh, visions or Even out of the body, one guy told me of going out of his body and coming up uh, in a body of water down in that he knew was Peru. Hmm. And the reason I got interested in the whistles um, was um, a Native American friend who was involved in a uh, harmonic convergence gathering back in 1987. And she was on a flat-top Indian mound here in Tennessee with a group of uh, like-minded friends. And they were up on there chanting and in a circle, and there were some whistling vessels that were being blown. And uh, she says all of a sudden it was like she was at Machu Picchu, which she recognized from pictures, you know, but she'd never actually been there. Yeah. And she was in this long robe, and uh she had this gold belt, I mean, gold uh Plate, metal plate that was uh, around her solar plexus, which she felt this energy vibrating there, and up above her was this large spaceship in the sky, and she thought, "Wow, what a what a vision!" And then she was, uh, she heard other people who were describing what they were experiencing, and said, "Lo and behold, they were describing the same thing she was." And, uh, so that was what triggered my interest in, in that area. I thought, wow, <laughs> this is, this is something I've got to study a little further.
2: Yeah. I, uh, we've got 15 minutes here. I wanted to ask you, what is a Peruvian whistling vessel? I tried looking them up online and there's a guy that makes them who I'm sure, you know, and there was one little video of some woman making them without really any on YouTube, without really any explanation of what they were or even it actually working. Um, and some of them it looks like have water in them, and you pull you uh, tilt it the water goes back and forth and makes and displaces the air and makes a whistle but w- what are these things? Where were they found what did they what do they do and um, why are you interested
3: well they were they were found all over Peru, and uh, they were used by the Incas and the Chimu culture, which is the ones that uh, the, that I are or patterned after and they're often effigy vessels, they're small uh, single double chambered, most of them some have more chambers than, than two but most of them are single or double and they, uh, the air goes in through a spout and it kind of goes around and then there's a little, when it come, where it comes out there's a little resonator that's just tuned to a you know, a high pitched frequency and when you blow more than one together, uh, and some of them actually you can blow and they have more than one resonator, so you're getting more than one frequency, but they often create this um, kind of like harmonic frequencies, Mm -hmm. and they actually induce um, an altered state in a lot of people where they suddenly they find themselves in this dreamlike, visionary-type point, point. And they they see some things uh often it's associated with the ancient past um, the uh, there was one gentleman who told me that uh he suddenly found himself uh in this village setting like he suddenly just showed up amongst all these uh these people you know in in Central America uh Mayan people he said, <clears throat> even though these are peruvian whistles but i I've since read where a lot of uh, a lot of these whistles, similar whistles had shown up and uh, being studied in, in Central America as well. And I've seen a picture of, of one in a book uh, from Mexico that looks very similar to the, the kind that, you know, the Peruvians had. But, um, when I, uh, I took a, a set of seven of these whistles uh, over to Greg Little's home over in Memphis one day, and, uh, Andrew Collins was a was a guest. They had a little gathering at, at uh at uh the Little's house and Andrew Collins was a guest and he was very interested in, in uh you know, shamanic things and he knew about uh some about uh the shamanistic practices of the region and he'd never experienced the whistle so he was interested in, in uh getting a first hand experience and uh we went out on uh, on a pontoon and there was, I guess, uh, close to a dozen of us out there and we blew the whistles. It was uh, kind of uh, early evening, the sun was setting and a uh, beautiful day. And there were four of us, as we described it later, who saw like a swirling vortex type thing. And interestingly, all four of us saw it swirling in the same same direction. And... Andrew was really impressed. He says, you know, you you guys, you know, you really need to uh, uh, work with a group of people and see if you can enter this state and, uh, you know, try to direct this. Uh, maybe, he says, because I believe that this is what, you know, shamans used and that this does create an altar state actually may take you into a, a realm where you can actually uh, project, uh, take this somewhere in certain directions and perform certain functions, or whatever, you know.
2: Yeah, it, so- uh, it sounds like uh, it sounds like what I think is going to happen when we have a time travel machine, which will not be a machine that you can get in and go somewhere, but uh, some kind of device that will cause your mind to be able to do that.
3: Right, and I've uh, I know that when uh, Brett, uh, a couple of years ago experienced the whistles with us, and um He felt, he found himself around a a fire with some Native American people, which he is of Native American ancestry. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he said all of a sudden there were like these, like these tubes of light that were coming down. He he didn't, you know, I hadn't told him anything really about what people had experienced, but it was, it was kind of very similar. But just before it it really connected, um, there was a person in the group who interrupted. interrupted us and that broke his whole uh what was happening, you know, the, the vision it disrupted it. Huh. And uh although we try to go back to it it's it's like a dream, you know. Uh yeah. it just didn't happen. But we've talked about trying to redo this again and see, you know, if uh, if we could bring bring that back about and see what, what that was all about.
2: Does this happen spontaneously, or do or, or do people have to kind of prepare themselves, or do people just pop into it when the sometimes when the uh, whistles are going?
3: Yeah, I mean, most people it's just relaxing, you know. Uh, there have been a few, very few people who found it, you know, disturbing and and, and would leave the room. <laughs>
4: uh,
3: but uh, but you know, there are some people who just, you know, I I, I prepare. Tell them a little history and what what other you know a little about what other people have, you know, experienced and and so on and and then just uh, tell them to relax and and um, just enjoy the the ride you know and to some people it's uh, it's pretty pretty profound pretty uh, interesting you know
4: yeah it'd
2: and,
3: be... uh, oh, go some ahead. people just seem to have a natural inclination for it.
2: It'd be interesting next time you do it. Just say, um, "Who knows about these things?" and then have those people leave the room, and then just start blowing them and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's unethical or not. I'm, I'm not sure, but
3: uh, no, I don't. I don't think it'd be a problem.
2: Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the one thing. I mean, I I will hear people playing. Uh, uh, like they'll be on coast to coast playing, um, EVP and they say, here's where so-and-so says this, and then that's all you can hear when, when they play it They're they've already front loaded you with what's supposed to be happening. So you, you've got a s- expectation. So your mind is going to wrap around that expectation. So it, it seems like it's more valuable to me to just, uh, as long as it's ethical and nobody's going to be hurt um to just uh, have somebody experience something without any front loading if possible and see what happens. No. That's you know, it's it's uh I, I it's kinda hard to do, but um and I don't I haven't put myself in that position. Maybe I should after hearing about this. It it's fascinating to me because it's there are so many different ways all over the world of of uh that people have used to enter altered states and it's uh, this one, this is until in the last couple of days when I've been reading up on some of your research, I had never heard of these things.
3: And, you know, I, I found later that uh, there was a lady in Ohio, a contactee that I had worked with, who we used to have a great correspondence going. And she had introduced me to a number of people in the Akron, Cleveland area who were having experiences. And she wrote to me back in the 80s, uh, I think it was, about. Um, maybe maybe the 70s. A lot of 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm.
4: Uh,
3: and I realized, and going back to what she called them, Peruvian jugs or something, and of uh, course I came to know them as the Peruvian Whistling Vessels. Yeah. And uh, she was talking about the same thing. and She was interested, uh, she had worked with uh, Tibetan bells and things, and, and trying, you know, inducing altered states. Uh, she had had experiences where uh, she had heard, uh, seen a flying saucer, and she said as it flew away, she heard these beautiful musical type scores, yeah. sounds. And uh-huh. she said, I can never describe what I heard. It was the most beautiful sound as this craft went away, she says. And I've, you know, done all these different things, and she had read something about the Peruvian jugs that. Uh, told about how people entered altered states and they created kind of like a buzzing sound in the in the ear, which kinda of reminded her of UFO sounds. So she was interested in uh finding out more about that. And then of course later on I just happened to uh, happen into it as well through my Native American friend.
2: Yeah. Well we've but, uh Go ahead.
3: that's the that's the story in the nutshell
2: all right well we've got uh, only a couple minutes left here uh i would certainly like to have you back on and continue our discussion and go on to the 10 other questions out of my 13 that we <laughs> we didn't get to <laughs>
3: okay well um yeah sure that sounds good that okay sounds good. i i uh I'll have to get you on my show too.
2: <laughs> all right, uh, any time. And um, you, uh, do you have uh, any place you want people to go to to uh, besides the? Well, we we will mention the Alternate Perceptions website, but any other uh, way to contact you or or anything like that, or can all be, can it all be done through the Alternate Perceptions site? Uh,
3: they can go to the uh, apmagazine.info,
4: mm-hmm.
3: which is Alternate Perceptions, or they can email me directly at uh, Brent. Reines at yahoo
2: Okay, excellent. B r e n t r a y n e s. Right, I'm, I, I
3: spell Raines a little different than most people.
2: <laughs> well, it's it seems natural to me, but the uh, I, you know I I haven't picked your name up on a spirit box yet, so I don't. Know. <laughs> Very strange well, get, interview. <laughs> uh, if we uh, talk again, I'm sure more stuff will come up. Or if you interview me now, I'll suddenly start saying things about that that will resonate with you. Very, very, kind of, kind of weird and 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 nice interview and and a uh, and um, kindred spirit and thanks so much, uh, Brent, for coming on and um, I will get in touch with you about coming on again because we certainly aren't finished and also uh, with Doctor Little as well who I've wanted to interview for quite a while a, I've just been nervous about it strangely enough so.
3: <laughs> well, uh, Greg would make a great interview and um, I appreciate you having me on. I've I've enjoyed it.
2: Well, thanks so much, Brent, and um, I will uh, communicate with you soon, and we'll, maybe we'll just set up another date and just look forward to it then.
3: Okay, sounds great. Thanks our, a lot, uh, our, Greg. Right, thanks uh, so much,
2: and thanks for staying on so late. I know it's almost midnight where you are.
3: Yeah, got to get up and go to work in the morning. Looking
2: forward to that. Yeah, me too. Okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> All right, you take care. Thanks, thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
2: Well, that was Brent Rains of uh, Alternate Perceptions Magazine, and uh, I've known of him, about him, and and con- and communicated with him, I believe, in the past. Um, he put out a couple tapes, actually a tape set, a cassette set in the in the nineteen nineties called Conversations in Ufology, where he he and uh, Doctor Greg Little talked about a lot of stuff we're talking about here. Um, I don't know if that's available anywhere. I still have copies of it. Maybe maybe I should uh, digitize them with uh, Brent's uh, permission and see if they can be posted somewhere. Uh, so that's the show. Hope you enjoyed it. Some people on Facebook were telling me they enjoyed it. Um, and we'll be back next week. I don't know who's going to be on. Maybe Dr. Little, Dr. Greg Little, um, an interview I've wanted to do for a long time as well. So stay tuned for At The Show with Bob here, and I will leave you with, um, I don't know if this... Okay, appropriately enough, um, Stardust by Hoagie Carmichael. Ready, Mysterioso? We'll see you next week.
1: Sometimes I wonder why I spend the lonely night dreaming of a song and a melody. Haunts my reverie And I am once again with you When our love was new And each kiss and inspiration Oh, but that was long ago Now my consolation Is in the stardust of the song. Beside A garden wall When stars are bright You are in my arms The nightingale Tells his fairy tale Of paradise where roses grew Though I dream in vain In my heart it will remain my stardust melody, the memory of love's refrain. Dream in vain in my heart, it will remain my stardust melody, the memory of love's refrain.